0: well, a little bit of a change of tack yeah we're what we're back uh, into what did Jesus say about money following our series on what did Jesus say about last week we looked at culture this week we're looking at money and It's true, isn't it? We all get a bit tense when we start talking about money, don't we? Um, There's an automatic resistance, probably, in each one of us when we hear someone talking about money, especially talking about our money. You know, it's mine, we say, don't we? I've earned it. I deserve it. uh, I can spend it or save it. I can use it as I choose. You know, we all guard our independence. Uh, We live very unaccountable lifestyles. So it may surprise some of us to hear that Jesus' number one favorite topic to talk about was money. Um, He talks about money more than he talks about prayer, more than he talks about faith, more than he talks about heaven and hell. Most of his parables, parables revolve around the issue of money and possessions. I mean, just think about some of them for a moment. There's the two debtors, there's the shrewd manager, there's the hidden treasure, uh, there's the pearl of great price, the rich fool building his barns, the lost coin, the wise servants, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, and so on and so on. You know, even the parable of the prodigal son you know, which is primarily about relationship, includes the themes of inheritance, uh, property, squandering of wealth, uh, extravagance, irresponsibility, uh, employment, jealousy, and generosity. Uh, On one occasion, people actually asked Jesus how they should spend their money, whether they should pay taxes, Uh, And we have to remember, it wasn't like our tax nowadays. This was a deeply unpopular thing that the Romans had had placed on on them. And it was a totally unjust system. And his ingenious reply was, give to Caesar uh, what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Money was a very important theme to Jesus because he knew that it's too pivotal an issue in our lives to ignore. You know, so many of our problems, our anxieties, our, our difficulties, and the complexities of life revolve around money. You know, so it's actually very artificial to stay away from this topic. Jesus knew that money would always be one of the hardest things for us to keep under control in our lives. So he warns us of its dangers. Uh, Luke 12, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life doesn't consist in the abundance of things. And in Luke 18, uh, that famous phrase, how hard it is, how hard it will be for the rich to enter the kingdom of of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus speaks about money a lot. And he talks about a sort of tussle, a fight between two things, and those two things are God God. And money, you know, that's how strong a hold it can have on us. But let's get one thing straight before we sort of go any further. Jesus never said it was wrong to have money. And he never extolled poverty as a sort of some great virtue. Only once did he tell someone to give away all that he had. Do you remember the rich young ruler? And that was simply to prove to him where his priorities lay you know, where his heart was. And that's the key to all of this. Jesus is concerned with the state of our heart, not the state of our bank balance. So this stuff applies to us all. It applies to the person who has a lot and the person who has a little. When we have a lot, the challenge is not to rely on it, not to live for it. When we have a little, the challenge is not to be resentful. Not to, uh, not to worry about it. And the problem with wealth is not in having it, Jesus says. It's how we get it, how we guard it, and how we use it. And um, yeah, there are many, many passages we could turn to where Jesus teaches us about money and possessions. But I'd like just to base this talk around a short passage in Matthew. So if you've got your Bibles, uh, turn to chapter 6 in Matthew. Chapter 6, and let's look at a few verses from verse 19, page 971. Thank you, Paul. We got it. Do not store up, Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other... Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Two treasures, two visions, two masters. Two treasures, verse 19 to 21, what's in your heart? Two visions, verses 22 and 23, how's your eyesight? And two masters, verse 24, who's your boss? Because that final phrase in our reading, you cannot serve God and money, actually should more accurately read, you cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon. And that word originally meant something that can be trusted. That's what it meant something that can be trusted. So Jesus is speaking about more than just money here, more than just sort of hard cash. Mammon. Is both wealth and the social standing, the sort of reputation, the recognition, the, the, the privilege, the comfort that comes from it. You know, we're, we're not used to seeing mammon, money, as a false god. So Jesus helps us here by personifying it as mammon. You know, here is the god of materialism versus the god of creation. Who will we choose? Two treasures. Let's start with that. Two treasures. What's in your heart? Jesus tells us here, where your treasure is, there will your, there will your heart be also. Uh, a church member said to their vicar, you know, I find it really difficult to get excited about our mission p- partnership projects in the church, you know, supporting them. And the vicar simply replied, try giving to it, you know, then your heart will be in it. Because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. It's an issue of the heart. Our heart, you see, always follows our treasure, whether it's down to earth or up to heaven. Because the things we treasure will always govern our lives. What, what we value most will tug at our heartstrings as well as our purse strings. They'll consume our thoughts and emotions, our time and our energy. You see, we think about our treasures. We, we're drawn towards our treasures. We fret about our treasures. We invest in our treasures. And we measure ourselves by our treasures. And this is so painfully true that any one of us who honestly examines ourselves can pretty well discover what our real treasures are. It's not difficult. We don't have to look far to discover where is our focus. You know, What are we constantly drawn to? Where do our thoughts always seem to take us? Because we will always tend to gravitate towards the spot where our treasures are stored. Our hearts will take us there. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's an issue of the heart. Money, you know, isn't an idol, but it will show us where our idols are. No one, you know, no one actually worships money. We worship what it can bring into our lives. Money is always in the service of an idol, and an idol is a false treasure. And it will claim to give us security, or or power, or looks, or popularity. But the truth is, every other treasure but Jesus will enslave us. You know, they will claim to be our savior, you know, with a little s. But instead of setting us free, they'll trap us. And these false idols promise much but deliver little. They will never give us what our heart is hoping for. Uh, Derek Kidner said this, If anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness it leaves. Man with eternity in his heart needs better nourishment than this. Jesus taught that what we do with money reveals what is really in our hearts. And the love of money has the power to grip our hearts. And Jesus' constant refrain in this part of the chapter is for us to choose, choose a different way from the world. You know, two treasures, two visions, two masters. You know, make your choice. Who or what will you worship? And the verbs in the passage hint at what the worship of mammon feels like, looks like. It says you hoard things, you treasure them, you serve them, you love them, you're devoted to them, you worry about them, you seek them. And finally, verse 32, you run after them. And these, those birds, verbs taken as a whole just sum up a sort of desperation, an obsession with accumulating stuff don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven. Now, what exactly is Jesus saying here? You know, is he against us having any kind of possessions? Is he against us saving for a rainy day? Is he against us enjoying the stuff that we do have? No. No but it's all a question of motive. It's a question of what is our goal? Who or what are we saving or spending for? What are we investing our resources in? And the telling little phrase Jesus uses here is storing up for yourselves. Storing up for yourselves. And he's, he's not saying possessions are bad in themselves. He's not saying that saving or investing are in themselves wrong. He's not saying that spending and enjoying good things is sinful. What he's coming against, surely, is the greed and materialism that takes over when things become our focus what he's getting against is the sort of hard-heartedness and selfishness that so easily takes over when things become too important to us. Anything basically that smacks of our kingdom come rather than his kingdom come. And Jesus' challenge here is for us to aim for what has eternal significance, And the question is, will we find the things that we've invested in here on earth mean nothing when we reach heaven or mean everything? What will we find? It's interesting, in Luke's version, when he uh, recounts this, he says, "...provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted." spend our money, our things, our gifts, our resources, our time in such a way that their effects will last into eternity. And Jesus says to us, do something that you can never lose. Spend yourself on things that won't rust or decay or get stolen. You know, spend your money forward into something that will last forever. And, you know, it ought to be easy for us to decide, you know, which treasure to choose. You know, one treasure, we're told, will decay. The other is inflation-proof. It ought to be easy. But, of course, the God Mammon makes us short-sighted. He makes us focus on what we can get now. You know, and he dazzles us, doesn't he, with the sort of superficial glitter of, of the stuff that we can accumulate and have Now. But you know, there's no baggage allowance for those who pass from this world into the next. Jesus tells us we can only store up treasure in heaven as we spend and are spent for the sake of the kingdom. There are only two ways of looking at things, Jesus says. Two visions, verses 22 and 23. Two visions. So, how's your eyesight? How's your eyesight? And Jesus says here, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, the Hebrew phrase, bad-eyed, describes a coveter or a hoarder. And good-eyed describes a contented and a generous person. And Jesus is urging us to have good eyesight, because you know, he knows that how we look at things, how we view our possessions, will infect or disinfect our whole lives. Money, or Mammon, tries to make us believe that just a little more, just a little more, will satisfy. But Jesus warns us here that greed simply corrupts a person from the inside out. And the more we have, the more we want. And if the last issue was one of the heart, the issue here is one of contentment. Uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller, probably one of the wealthiest men in the last century, was once asked this question, how much money does it take for someone to be really satisfied? And he replied, just a little bit more. (laughs) The Romans had a saying that money was like seawater. You know, the more you drink, the more thirsty you become. Now, I wonder how many of us thought that when we reach the income level we're now at, that we'd be happy, we'd be satisfied. But it's so true, isn't it, that wherever we've got to, there's always something more. We're constantly reaching for the next thing that's just out of our grasp. You know, I don't know what it might be for you, you know, the loft extension, that, that dream holiday, the promotion, you know, a foot on the property ladder. That must have piece of kit. You know, we've never been wealthier, but never been more dissatisfied. And such a contrast, isn't it, with Jesus' simple, stark statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he's talking about a sort of deep soul satisfaction here, isn't he, that doesn't depend on what's happening around us. Because he knows that our soul will never be satisfied by outward things. You know, nothing outside of us can truly satisfy the hunger, the thirst, that is deep down inside each one of us. And he warns us here that the way we look at things will either fill our lives with light or darkness. It's as straightforward as that. If we have good eyes, you see, we'll be able to rejoice in others' good fortune. If we have bad eyes, we'll simply be envious of them. If we have good eyes, we'll be content and grateful for what we have. If we have bad eyes, we'll never have enough. If we have good eyes, we'll be generous with what we have. If we have bad eyes, we'll be selfish and hard-hearted and smug." And, you know, generosity is the antidote to covetousness and greed. Whenever, you know, we're reluctant to share or give, it ought to sound an alarm that we need to check the condition of our heart. And do you know that every act of generosity is a violent act upon mammon? It's good, isn't it? Every act of generosity is a violent act upon mammon. Most Christians today are are blind to this God, Mammon, but the early Christians knew that it was important. They lived it out. They were so generous, we're told, that there, there was no needy persons among them. They held on to their things so lightly that they were told they joyfully accepted even the confiscation of their property because they knew that they had better and lasting possessions. Now, we all admire that sort of radical faith, don't we? But I think we nearly all admit that we're not very good at copying it. The Danish philosopher Kierkegaard put it this way. The matter is quite simple, he says. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we do, we're obliged to obey it. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? But Jesus calls us to let his kingdom ruin our lives so that he can set us free from the stranglehold of the kingdom of Mammon. Bill Hybel put it this way. It beckons and woos us, he says. It tantalizes and seduces us. It sucks us into its grasp, distorts our vision, and wreaks havoc in our lives. And we continue to deny its sinister power. How's our vision? Is our eyesight good or bad? And where do we find ourselves on the contentment scale? And then finally, two masters, verse 24. Who's your boss? Who's your boss? Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and mammon, God and money. So who will you choose? Who will be your master? Is money calling the shots in your life or is God? And Jesus knew that this would always be one of the greatest battles in our lives, you know, right down the centuries. He knew how readily money takes a hold on us, how it masters us. You know, Judas betrayed his lord for 30 silver coins. The rich young ruler turned away because wealth his wealth was just too important to him. Some of the seed, we're told, planted by the sower never grew because it was choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. Uh, Jesus denounced the Pharisees as lovers of money, and he rescued Zacchaeus from living for money. Jesus knew what a tyrant money could become in our lives. You see, we're here on this earth to serve God, and money is here to serve us. But the truth is that many of us have ended up literally at the beck and call of money. Money has become our master. Cash is our king. Mammon will always strive to replace God as the source of our security and fulfillment. Because Mammon has a very clever strategy. You know, his goal is to keep us in a state of permanent worry because he knows what worries us masters us. He deceives us into trusting him, and then he just ties us up in knots of uncertainty because mammon is unreliable and unstable. Money, you see, is the gift, not the giver. And as someone said, it's the supreme act of treason to trust in the gift rather than the giver of all good gifts. And that's why Jesus points us straight to the Father. Do you see verse 25? Straight to the Father, to the one who is reliable and trustworthy. The one who says, you know, don't worry. Please don't worry. Don't waste your time, your life worrying. Trust in me and I'll provide for you. So if the issue is one of the heart in point one, and one of contentment in point two. The issue here in this final point is one of trust, isn't it? And I wonder if you realize that worry is the opposite of faith because it reveals a lack of trust. Don't worry here literally means don't get distracted away from trusting God. You see, some of us are eaten up with worry. And we won't stop worrying about money until we start to give it away until we start to have that open hand. And you know, when we give, we often find that the first blessing, the very first blessing, is that we're suddenly freed from worry. That's what happens. And God says to each one of us here, you know, I want to put blessings in your hand, but I can't, I can't put it into a clenched fist. And your fists are closed tightly around your possessions. Afraid, so afraid that you're going to lose them. But he says, I can't put my blessings into a clenched fist. Open it up. Open up your hand. You know, let me, let go of your things and look what I will put into your hands. Look what I will put into your hearts and lives when you let go. Just open up your hands and trust me. And Jesus sets down here a radical creed for us to follow. It's a a brave call in a mammon-worshipping world. He says, verse 33, Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well. C.S. Lewis put it, Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you'll get neither. (laughs) And the point of life, Jesus says, is not to get rich, but to get righteous, to get in a right relationship with God. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians puts things in such clear perspective when he reminds us that Jesus, though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. You know, it's the great transaction Jesus, the only one who emptied himself of the whole wealth of heaven for us, becoming poor so that we might become rich, giving it all up for us. And the more we understand what it cost Jesus to rescue us, the more it will free us from stuff. And Tim Keller says this as I close Every other treasure in the world will insist that you die for it, but Jesus is the one treasure who died to purchase you and me. All other treasures will demand that you do anything to get them. But Jesus Christ did anything to get you. Jesus is the one treasure who died to get you. And he adds, when you see him dying because you were the treasure of his heart, then he'll be the treasure of yours. Let's stand, shall we?